Blessings to everyone. I am back once again. Thank you guys for tuning in. Today's guest is the most fabulous Brenda Tracy of Set the Expectation nonprofit organization. It's dedicated to ending sexual and interpersonal violence through prevention, work with men, advocacy, and engagement, and with agents agencies, I'm sorry, surviving survivors and their families. Brenda Tracy survived a brutal gang rape by four college football players. No justice, no peace is what I said when it came to that. No justice, no peace. And you know how a lot of people are when they feel like they can do what they want to do. No, guess what? Wrong. You can't do what you want to do. So now we have Miss Brenda Tracy coming forth to talk to us about her experience and what her main goal and mission is. So without further ado, here is Miss Brenda Tracy. Hey, Brenda. Oh, you're muted. Sorry. Oh, I you're muted you. No, you're okay. Oh, okay. I, you. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Thank you for having oh, me. Hey, thank you for accepting the invitation. Um, you know, a lot of times when it seems like it's a lot of things that stand in the way of two people being connected, that means that there is a serious message that's coming forth. God always has a plan. And guess what? Satan is defeated, so it don't matter. <laughs> Absolutely. Amen. <laughs> Wholeheartedly yeah. believe everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what I'll say is that I'm thankful that of, of everything that you're doing, uh, with the nonprofit organization. Um, first off, what I'll ask you to do, if you don't mind, is give your testimony because you know we're over overcome by the blood of the lamb and the words of our testimony. And so I really want you to give your testimony. And if you want me to slide out the way, I'll go ahead and slide out and I'm gonna oh, no. give you the floor. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I, I'm I'm happy to um, talk about this. I just want to say for the for the people on listening or watching that, you know, it can be very triggering um, if there's, you know, survivors there and I am a rape survivor. So I'll make sure everybody is taking care of themselves first and foremost. Um, and also just excited to be able to talk about kind of the, the God part of my story too, you know? I mean, I think that's so important when I think about my journey and what's happened in my life. Um, but yeah, um, in my early 20s, I was a young woman. I was dating a football player at Oregon State University. And I went um, with a friend over to one of the football players' homes and I had a drink. And it, and I believe it was drugged. Um, but I ended up being um, sexually assaulted by four college football players uh, that night. I immediately reported to the police. I got a rape kit done at the hospital. I did everything that I thought, you know, a good victim is supposed to do in that moment to get justice. And um, ultimately I didn't. Uh, there was a lot of backlash towards me, a lot of victim blaming. Who is she? Um, why is she reporting these men? Why is she lying? Um, that kind of thing. So kind of in a nutshell, what happened was um, the story went to the media because two of the men played for Oregon State University and the other two played football in California. And so um, there was a lot of backlash. I received, you know, death threats against myself and it was pretty horrible um, being in the public around that. But um, the DA at the, at the time told me I didn't have a good case and it'd be really hard for me to win. Um, and that, you know, the rape kit and all the photos of my body would be made public. Um, 
lost a lot of friends and family around the situation that kind of turned on me. Um, so I dropped the case uh, based on what, you know, the DA had said to me. I thought I was making an informed decision. And then my, the public kind of said, you know, see, we told you she's lying. If something had really happened, uh, they would have prosecuted the case. And so uh, I reported to the school. Um, they said that they would handle it and they took it very seriously and I believe them. And then I tried to kind of move on with my life from there. Um, I had two very small children at the time when this happened. And so I ended up going to nursing school, um, made a career for myself, raised my sons, um, but was also living a double life during that time because I, you know, on the out on the outside, outward public facing side, you know, I was going to school and I did really well and I became a nurse and, and raised my sons. Um, but on my private side, I was, you know, dealing with depression and PTSD and disordered eating and that kind of thing. And so um, in 2010, actually, um, I'd always had a relationship with God kind of, but like at arm's length, um, I kind of grew up with a lot of um, rules around like the, the Episcopalian church and that kind of thing. And so I always kind of had this idea that I needed to be perfect for God to love me or to be able to be in the presence of God. And in 2010, I ended up getting saved at like this business conference. It was very like random and kind of wild. But um, and then I had asked a friend who was also um, a saved woman. I said, like, what do I do now? Like, <laughs> I want my life to be different, but I don't know what to do. And she gave me like a CD and it was of Joyce Meyer. And I listened to that CD and it was the first time I heard somebody say, God loves you exactly as you are right now. And you don't have to do anything to be with him or for him to love you. And that completely changed my entire life. And so then I just started digging in and I gravitated to things like anything meant for your harm, God can turn for your good. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and um, all things are possible with God and to those who believe. And so I just kind of centered on those type of messages. And then, you know, four years later, there came this moment where I was going to be able, like through a series of circumstances, crazy circumstances, we don't have time to go over today, but um, where I was going to be able to share my story publicly. And so I just leaned on those, like those lessons of like, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me, anything meant for my harm can be turned for my good. And I just, I really leaned on that. And I went public with my story in 2014. And then from there, I kind of feel like I've just been saying yes. Like, I feel like every time God asks me to step out in faith and do something, I just say yes. And I trust <laughs> that on the other side of that faith and stepping out in fear, really, um, that something good is going to come. And so from that, I have um, dedicated my life to being an, an advocate and activist for survivors. I mostly work with men in my work because I believe that men are the solution. I think that if women um, or the communities most affected by sexual violence could fix it, we would have already done it. So I think that men got to get involved. And so I spent a lot of time in college football. Um, I was just with a professional NFL team last week, uh, military. I was just in South Korea. Um, I have a nonprofit, Set the Expectation. We do a lot of engaging men in the work. Uh, we work with agencies that serve survivors. Um, so, yeah, and from that, I just think that, you know, God has opened so many doors. Um, I was named, um, you know, in 2022, one of the most powerful women or the top 11 power brokers in college football before that. Sports Illustrated named me one of the most powerful women in sports. Um, so, 
yeah, it's been a wild, it's been a wild ride, but it's been really amazing. And I've, um, so grateful for, for the journey. Listen, I, you know, I commend you for even keeping, you're like pushing forward with this, like constantly, because let me tell you how our stories are so much alike. I was 14. And oh. I was raped by four guys when I was 14. Wow. I'm and sorry. The, and the PTSD um, from it was not so much as really the trauma. I could still smell the bubble. Mm -hmm. I could yeah. smell it. And so, it, it, you know, it's stuff like that. But I never told. Yeah. And so that was the, the hardest thing is that I never told. Until 35 years later, I was 49 when I finally did tell, and I wrote it in a book. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be the story for many of us that we, you know, it took me 16 years before I came forward and said anything. Um, and, and, and some of us never, never tell. Mm -hmm. And that's the saddest part right there is because we have to get the word out. You got to, because there's so many people that are doing this that are getting away with it. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of times it's generational stuff. These guys, a lot of times get this from somebody on their father's side or mama's side or whatever that just have, don't even have a conscience for what they do to people. So yeah. how do you even get past this? How were you able to overcome? Like, did you get therapy or, or anything like that? I mean, I mean, I think it kind of, kind of everything kind of started with therapy. I will say that because I had started into therapy in 2014. I was just kind of sick and tired of being sick and tired. I think, you know, and living a double life because you, you, you're trying to hide this horrible thing that's happened to you, but it affects you every day, right? And so I was just very sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I had, I had just turned 40 and I just wanted to feel better. I wanted to like wake up one day and like want to be here, literally want to be here, want to live. And so I started going to therapy and um, through a series of events, I ended up meeting a, a sports reporter. And I remember his, his name was John Canzano. And he said, um, you know, you have a story and I would like to share it. And I remember saying to him, like, what story? Like, who cares? It happened 16 years ago. Nobody cared then. Why would they care now? And he was like, no, I think you could help somebody. And I'd like to share your story. And I kind of just said, well, fine. Right. Like put my name and my face on it. Like to me, I was just so desperate for something different. I actually didn't even, and this is the kind of the, I don't know if sad thing or not, but people ask me all the time, like, how did you get the courage to step forward with your story? And I always tell them like, it wasn't courage in that moment. Like I was just so desperate or something different that I thought maybe this was it. Maybe this was something. And I really did feel like if God gave me this opportunity, then right. Like I'll take it. And, it, and if it, if it doesn't work out great, but, but either way, because God works all things out, out all things out for good. I just knew like in some way this was going to be okay. Right. I didn't know what it was going to be. I was terrified, but I was like, somehow this is going to be okay. And I was desperate. And so I did it and it really was amazing. It was an amazing moment for me to step forward in that way. And I quit living. I talk about how I stepped out of my, my prison of shame and silence and became one person that day for everybody to see. 
um, and kind of, you know, standing in my truth, which I used to think was kind of a cheesy saying, but now that I've like actually lived it, <laughs> like it's like one of the most profound things you can do is like actually live your whole authentic self. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was an amazing transformational moment in my life. Um, and I think proof for me, witness for me that like everything I'd been learning and believing about God and my faith was really true. It was really true. Um, and that I was built to do hard things and I can do hard things and we all can do hard things and we can all step out in faith and fear and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I've, I've, how I've done it, I've really leaned on my faith. I really have. I really, really have. We have to live by faith. And I'll tell you, um, there was a conversation I was just having earlier about our blueprint. Um, the blueprint that God has created for each one of us. And I talk about this blueprint a lot because we don't know exactly what's on that blueprint. We don't know what it is. And I think that's by design, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're not supposed to. (laughs) Right. And that's the thing right there is we don't know what it is that God allows to happen that is going to dictate a part of our life that's on that blueprint. Yeah. And 16 years later, as they say, as such a time as that was your time. And at Mm -hmm. that time, it just wasn't. And because by faith, you stepped out on faith and just said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and do it, whatever. I mean, they didn't do nothing before. Who is it going to hurt? You know, because it's like if we don't tell our stories, then we can't help other people. We can't help other people. We already have like our our mothers and grandmothers that sit on stuff until the day that they die. We never know what happened to them or anything like that. And there was so much family stuff that was happening and the family dynamics. But at the same time, we have to be the generations that change things and how things look. Well, and I think even within our families, you know, and I'm not saying that everyone should, you know, share their story publicly or anything like that. I think that everyone needs to be safe to share their stories, right? Because we've definitely know people that share their stories and try to confide and talk to people and it goes very badly and it's very traumatic for them. Um, But when I think about like generational trauma and breaking curses and, and, and cycles and that kind of thing, I also think about all of the things we don't know about our grandmothers, right? It was then passed on to our mothers and they didn't know. And then that's passed on to us and we passed on to our children. I I like to think that for me and my family, like me talking about this and sharing the story gives me and my sons an opportunity to change it for their children and their children's children. Because generational trauma is passed on and it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And sometimes we don't even know what the source of it is. But how many of us, the source is some sort of trauma, like what you and I have experienced, because it changes everything about you. You're you're not the same after it happens. You don't you're not the same parent. You're not the same friend. You're not you're not the same person. So, you know, you you definitely pass things on. Because, you know, I was sitting here thinking that you can't even be your authentic self, like you were saying, as a parent. You know, how much of yourself have you held back from your children? because Mm -hmm. of this stuff lingering around and if you're not emotionally available 
then these children end up being children that don't know what it feels like to truly be loved because they don't, they're deprived of that part of you just because that part hasn't been dealt with. Yes. And I think for me being a woman with sons, it was even like, I just did not want them to know. I thought that they would never be able to like really love me or respect me or be proud of me once they found out like this horrible thing that had happened to me. Um, and so it absolutely did affect our family dynamic. You know, I, I call my children survivors too. You know, they were raised, they were raised by a depressed and sometimes suicidal woman. So to say that they weren't affected would be an understatement to say that they weren't affected by what happened. And so, you know, it's been, um, it's been quite a journey, me being kind of a public facing figure and a rape survivor um, and being in the media a lot um, and having them go through that with me as well. I mean, they're obviously, um, well, I won't say obviously, but they're supporters of mine, um, which has been amazing. But it was really, they were older before I told them. I think my my older son was, um, see, he was probably 17 before I told him. Um, and his brother was around that age too. I didn't tell him until right before my story went public. So I hid it for a long time and they just didn't know why mom was the way that she was. Yeah. And think about it. It was like, you was walking around like a zombie. Mm -hmm. it yeah. was like being a zombie. And you're a nurse too, right? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm a nurse. nurse, nurse. Too. I'm a nurse. Too. <laughs> we, like, we love to take care of people, right? <laughs> But it, it was something that was said to me um, by my brother yesterday is he said to me that you're so busy taking care of other people. Mm -hmm. When do you get the opportunity to truly take care of you and yeah. focus on you? And it's like when you I don't know if you've ever been through domestic violence before. I have. Yeah. I, I've been through domestic violence for years. And it's like when you go from relationship to relationship to relationship and you're tying all of these souls, all of them clinging together and you got all of this extra stuff that's on you and you never get a chance to clear yourself out. And then you digging on the inside, trying to find you, knowing who you are. Like you, you. It's like, yeah, I, I, I'm a wife. Yes, I'm a mother, and I'm a nurse. But I'm much more than that because mm -hmm. I don't even know what's in here. Yeah. What's supposed to come out of here? You feel me? I just that yeah. whole thing. Whew. Yeah, that stuff's hard because I'm kind of what I call a, a pro, kind of a project. I, it's kind of a play on words, but a project chick, <laughs> like I need a project. I always have something to do. So then, and, and I'm also very like, I need to, because my self-esteem has been so, um, uh, I don't know, um, impacted by like sexual violence and domestic violence and all that kind of stuff. I always feel like I need to prove my worth. Like I need to, I need to have a reason to take up space. Um, and to kind of breathe the same air as everyone else. So I do things like I went to school and I got a master's and a bachelor's and, you know, I'm just constantly trying to prove my worth constantly. And so I always have a project I'm doing or I'm nursing or I'm, you know, doing something, trying to prove my worth to the world. Like I belong here, but you know, then in the quiet moments when you just have to sit with yourself, those are hard. <laughs> when you, when you run out of projects and you guys just sit with yourself and be by yourself with yourself, those are really hard moments, but those, I also find those are the moments where like, I really have to dig in and, and trust God, like, 
You know what I mean? Like you're sitting still for a reason and you're supposed to be in this moment. You're supposed to be figuring out, you know, what, what is this? But it's hard to be with yourself. It's hard. I would tell you what I've learned how to do is I have learned how to, like I have my secret place in the house, right? I have my secret place. But in my secret place is where God meets me. Mm-hmm. And it's in my loft, which is where I am right now. When I come to my loft, as I come up the steps, I take my shoes off because, you know, yes. that's holy ground. And as I come in here, I put the soaking music on. And I didn't realize that I could do this before because, you know, your mind, when you're somebody that got to be doing something, your mind is constantly going. Mm-hmm. So how can God place something else inside of you when it's still something going on all the time? So yeah. I learned how to empty. I dumped. I learned how to dump. And it might have been, oh, yeah, I guess. What am I going to cook later? You know, I supposed to be spending time with God. But I'm thinking about, oh, I got to finish doing this. Oh, I got to. Oh, yeah, I forgot to take this out and I forgot to do this and blah, blah, blah. But I learned how to dump. But yeah. once I learned how to dump and I put my soaking music on that stays on for three to four hours to sit in God's presence. And be still. <laughs> oh my goodness. I didn't even know that I could do that, but to yeah. sit there. Once I realized that I could do it, I sit there and didn't realize that it was three and four hours later because there's so much peace. But then yeah. it's like when you've always been, you know, like unhappy about something or your emotions been all over the place and things like that, and you learn to sit in his presence, the joy that he places on the inside of you. I promise you this one day, I was so giddy all day. It was like getting on my nerve because I was like, (laughs) I was overly giddy because it was his joy. And I didn't know what that really truly felt like. So it's it's just like a high. You're running for it and you're trying to catch that high all the time. It's like, God, I, I, I need this. Yeah. Well, and how many people don't know the distinction between being happy and joy? Right. They're two very different things. And a lot of times I think we we chase happiness thinking we're chasing joy through things and situations and people. But really, joy is like on the inside. It is when you're still and you're not chasing anything. And those are those are two very different things. Yeah. And they say happiness is a choice. You have to choose that, you know, and that joy that comes inside. I promise you, it was spilling over and it was just crazy, especially the first time when I I discovered that. My husband was like, man, you mighty giddy. I'm like, yep. You know, like that is, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, too, like as we're talking about this, just like that joy and that stillness, I think for me, a lot of that has like traced back to just understanding and knowing that I am enough, right? Because that's been a really hard one for me. And I think the trauma that I've dealt with in my life has has told me that I'm not enough, right? You're damaged, you're broken, you can't recover from this, you, no one's gonna love you, you know, you, you need to perform for people to care about you or love you. Um, and so just being able to, to be still and feel like I am enough, that's something I work on a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people, especially with sexual violence related trauma, domestic violence, I think a lot of us deal with that. Right. And think about how, how much we have to, 
really focus on keeping ourselves like focused, just keeping mm-hmm. ourselves yeah. focused. That's a whole task within itself. Yeah. Yeah, That's absolutely. Because I, I know for me, I don't know about other survivors. I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I always have like this negative tape and voice in my head just constantly at me. Like, who do you think you are? And especially when I started doing this work on like a national scale, right? Like the first time I went into like, you know, a college football team room or an NFL room or, you know, these big rooms with world leaders. And this voice was like, who do you think you are? And I would just think a child of God. <laughs> but you know what? That, that was the best answer ever because you know how Satan does, but he, he does that. That's how he mm-hmm. works. That's how he works because he wanted to discourage you. Yeah, but of course. Know who you are and yeah. whose you are. He can't do yeah. nothing. I yeah. heard, um, I was at a conference recently and one of the speakers, I um, am blanking on his name right now, but he said, you do not need to ask for permission to add value. And I remember that was so profound to me because how many times do we think I can't, I can't do this unless I have like an education. I can't do this unless I have whatever, but a lot of times our life experiences, you know, it's that whole idea of like, God doesn't always call the equipped, but he equips the called, right? Like it's, it's kind of like, you don't need permission to add value. Um, and so I, that really resonated with me because I feel like the work I do, you know, at first I was like, oh, I've never taken speaking classes or I don't have a degree in this, but I'm like, you know, my life experience my vulnerability is my power, my authenticity. Um, and plus, I feel like I'm living in my purpose right now. You know, I don't I don't need to ask for permission to add value. That's right. That's right. You know, as God says, your gifts will make room for you. He opens doors that people cannot shut. Mm-hmm. And he shuts doors that people cannot open. And when that door yeah. opened and you walked right through it, that it was game yeah. on from there. Yeah. So let me yeah. ask you about Tracy rules. Let's let's talk oh. about Tracy rules. Yeah. <laughs> so the Tracy rule is a policy. Um, so when I first started doing this work in the college space, uh, the NCAA, if you don't know, is a kind of a governing body over all of well over about thirteen hundred of our universities sports programs. So. Like it used to be the athletes couldn't accept money. There was like recruiting rules, transfer rules. There's all these rules for athletes in college spaces. And there's a lot of NCAA violations you could get in trouble for. Um, Gambling, amateurism, that kind of thing. If you got bad grades, you could get kicked off your team because that's an NCAA violation, that kind of thing. But sexual assault was not an NCAA violation. So athletes literally, even today, athletes can commit sexual assault, be found guilty in a court of law, and still play sports on their campus and still transfer and get scholarships at any other school. And so I felt like that was wrong. I felt like that should be a violation. You should not get to play sports if you have committed a crime of sexual violence against someone. And so I sat on the NCA Commission to Combat Sexual Violence for a couple of years. Um, they didn't want to do anything about it. So I helped a um, the Big Sky Conference. We talked about they created a policy And then I kind of felt like that wasn't really the best they could do. So I created my own policy and I just started taking it to schools and being like, you need a policy. You need to deal with violent athletes. This isn't okay." Um, And then so now two schools um, have adopted it. UTSA, University of Texas at San Antonio and then University of Virginia at Wise. Um, 
but it's the most comprehensive serious misconduct policy in the country and in the NCAA, and it's working. The schools are happy with it, and I'm continuing to push other schools to adopt the policy. I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, behavior matters. And if you harm someone, then there are consequences to that, right? And I also think that for me, it's a mechanism to um, push healthy culture because I think a lot of times what happens with our athletes is we commoditize them. And we see this a lot with our male athletes and like football and basketball, they are commodities. They are elite bodies on a field intended to make money. And so we don't really care about their behavior. We don't necessarily care about them as whole human beings. And so for me, if we attach behavior to eligibility, what we've done now is invest people around them to care about who they are as people, right? Like not only are you getting good grades so you can stay eligible, but who are you hanging out with? What are you doing? Do you understand what consent is? Are, you, are there any mental health issues? Cause we want to keep this player eligible. So now we have a vested interest in them as a whole person. And so it's a way to uh, not commoditize them uh, for money and for, for wins. And so, um, because I work with a lot of men and I see the pain that happens, right? We're just, we're kind of, there's programs that are just using these young men and women and then just tossing them out when they're not, when they're not winning anymore or they hurt their knee or, or whatever. So um, this is a way to um, change culture for me. Wow. I think that's amazing. You know, it's, it's so weird that um, here in, in Nashville, they, um, there was a young lady that was gang raped. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, Vanderbilt, right? Is that the case yep. we're talking about? At Vanderbilt, mm -hmm. but yeah. they got sentenced, you know, and, and that's the thing right there. It's like, no means no. I don't yeah. care how deep in we go, it's still no. You know? It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, it, it, it feels like it's not rocket science, right? Like, it feels like it's like not rocket science, Um, but people try to complicate the issue and the matter a lot. And I think, I think it's not even just about, you know, understanding what consent is, but it's talking about just rape culture at its, at its, at its core, right? Like victim blaming and all the false reports and all of these other things and attitudes and things that people buy into. Cause how many times do we blame the victim and not the perpetrator? right we make the victim responsible for the perpetrator's behavior what was this person wearing what were they doing there who cares right right who cares i i can't make another person decide to use their body to violate mine like that's their decision it has nothing to do with what i've done and quite frankly and i teach this all across the country no one is in harm's way unless another person decides that they're going to harm them that's right so it doesn't matter what I do, right? It doesn't matter where I'm at. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm not going to be harmed unless another person decides that I'm going to be harmed, period. Wow. Mm -hmm. wow. That's amazing, man. You just, I, I just, I commend you. I mean, you, you. I mean, when, when you know that somebody is supposed to be somewhere, it's so natural. Everything just flowed. It just seemed like it just flow just the way it was supposed to just the way it's supposed to so do you guys have um where you do um like a walk or anything against rape or you know do you have like national things that you do on a regular basis for your foundation 
So for a foundation, yeah, we do have some things. So we we work with um, college campuses. We also work with pro athletes, but we do things called set the expectation events. But really what we try to do is just people that want to engage with the nonprofit, we kind of support, try to support what they want to do. So let's say that someone is listening right now and they're like, you know what? I would love to do a walk in my city. Are you guys here? Or how can, you know, what can we do to facilitate that? We try to make sure we support people and what they want to do. So um, we have pro athletes right now in DC. We do a toy drive every year for children living in domestic violence, sheltered housing. We do vision board sessions with pro athletes um, and children affected by sexual violence and domestic violence, uh, fostered youth. Um, we have a whole bunch of different events that we do, but mostly whoever wants to get involved, they can. You can reach out to our organization um, and let us know what you wanna do. We've seen in the past, we've seen bake sales, we've seen music concerts, we've seen car washes, we've seen walks, we've seen movie nights. We, you know, we just kind of feel like there's nothing really off the table. Anytime anybody wants to raise awareness, anytime people want other people to get involved in their communities, because for me, that's really what it's about. What are we each doing in our communities where we live to create awareness, um, build community, you know, form alliances um, and, and serve survivors? And not only that, but take off the stigma and the shame. You know, we do a lot of set, what we call set the expectation games um, and like football and sports in college. And so it's like the pink ribbon where we raise awareness and you have the pink ribbon everywhere at a game. Uh, we do the same thing with our teal and purple ribbon for sexual assault uh, prevention and domestic violence awareness. Um, but really it's about celebrating survivors. Like there should be no shame for the survivor, zero. Like I wanna celebrate your resilience. I wanna celebrate your courage. I wanna raise awareness. I wanna let people know where the resources are. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to reach out. Like there's nothing wrong with you, nothing. And whatever shame you're carrying, it's not even yours. Give it back to the person that it belongs to. Yep. You know, it's, it's something that I always say. I always say that you are not the reason why that person is the way that they are. It's not exactly. your fault of how they nope. grew up. It's not the, your fault of the attitude that they have. It's not your fault that they immature. It's not your fault. None of that has anything to do with you. Yeah. There is this thing that I look at as if um, the fact that Satan takes over and he's running rampant out here. He's running rampant. And we can't just blame Satan because you have to be a willing vessel for him yes. to do it. Got to be a willing well, vessel. And I, and I think for God's plan too, right? Like I think that, you know, God's plan is carried out in the world through people. And I've always kind of felt in my position of what I'm doing, I always kind of felt like, well, if I didn't say yes, he would move to the next person until he found somebody who would say yes, right? And so I feel like part of what I do is I just say yes. When I feel like God is asking me to do something, I say yes. Because I very well could just say no and not do it. And then he would find someone else to do it. And so I feel I feel pretty honored and blessed to uh, do the work that I do. And um, I love being on stuff like this because I wear my survivorship with pride. I don't ever want another survivor to feel like they should be ashamed or hiding or anything. And I, I love the opportunity to stand as an example, like almost defiantly, like I will not be shamed and I will not carry someone else's shame. I, do, I won't do it. I will not you do have it. definitely been chosen by God. That's for sure. Thank you. And it's 
so much more that God is about to do with you. And this is, it's like, you haven't seen, you haven't seen nothing. This is really just the beginning. This is just the tip of the iceberg of where God is going to take you. Um, this thing is national, it's global, it's, it's everywhere. And there's so many other yeah. places that your voice has to be heard in. And especially with um, teenage girls, especially, you know, yeah. the young girls that are coming up now, they really need to hear your voice. They really yeah. do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, you know, the, these issues, um, I always talk about how sexual violence doesn't discriminate, but we do. Right. There's there's not there's anyone, anyone can experience this type of violence. It doesn't it doesn't matter your race, your religion, your socioeconomics, your neighborhood. It, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Anybody can be affected by this. It's actually something that I feel like is, you know, um, an issue of humanity. And we really have to just dig in and, and can connect with each other's humanity if we're going to if we're going to, you know, stop this. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, um, so I can't remember the other name. So is this person partnered with you through a champion program? Are you guys all oh. tied in together? So are you know, we talking I'm just about going James? off the top of my head. Yeah. Are we talking about James Smith Williams? There it is. Yes. yes. So, James, so James Smith Williams. So I've been on over a hundred college campuses, like, you know, over a hundred football teams across the country. He was at uh, NC State when I met him. He was a junior. And I went in and I and I shared my story with about, I think there's like 350 male athletes in the room at the time. And I shared my story of what happened to me. And then at the end of every story, every time I share my story, I give a call to action. And I said, you know, who's serving survivors right now in Raleigh, right? Reach out to them, find out what they need. You have this big platform with this, you know, with this football team. You have thousands of people that come see you every weekend. What is this agency doing to serve survivors? And so he did that. And uh, he did a donation drive. So paper towels, hygiene products. He did it at a, at a, at a baseball game because the football season was over. But I saw this on social media. He didn't even tell me he was doing it. I saw it on social media and I was like, oh, I need to meet this guy. And so um, I did. And we started working together while he was in, in uh, college. And then he got drafted in 2020. And he went to the Washington uh, Commanders. Um, and we've been close ever since he founded the champions program. He's been in DC. Um, I think we've served several thousand families at this point. Um, you know, raised over $150,000, I think. Um, it's been, it's been, it's been really cool to see him, um, and to mentor him and, and, and be friends with him and just see him doing the work that he's doing um, is it's really a, a blessing. And it just feels like it's kind of feels like my work full circle embodied in, in like a man, right? <laughs> like, well, like I'm trying to engage men and, and here is this man that just stands as this amazing example of what's possible. Yeah, I love that because like you said, um, men, are 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 your target that's your target yeah. audience and that's how they can get it out you know yeah that's well if you think way. about it right if women could fix this we would have already done it right if you and i right now could wave a wand and say this will never happen to another woman again or any other person we'd be done we'd just be like okay we're done bye <laughs> right. um in in any community most affected if they could fix it they would do it um and it's not all men right we know that 
we know that is about 10% of our male population doing these things, which means 90% are good men. The problem within that 90% of good men, there's men that are complicit in their silence, they're complicit in their inaction, or they're a good guy and they say, I don't do this, why is my problem? And what I do is I say to these men, it's your problem because I can't fix it by myself. The 10% of the men that are doing this aren't gonna do anything, so who does that leave? That leaves you, that leaves the good man. And I need you to start getting educated. I need you to get involved. I need you to stand up. I need you to, you know, become an ally, basically. And, and so a lot of the men I talk to. It may affect their daughter. It may affect their sister one day. So why not get involved now? Well, and how many men are also survivors? That's true. That too. Right? And their sons are going to be survivors. I mean, there is, I think, one in, I want to say one, I think it's one, I think the CDC said it's one in four men will experience some sort of sexual touching or assault within their lifetime. And how many men don't talk about it, right? Right. They they are especially quiet about these things. So again, these are issues of humanity. And if we all work together, it benefits all of us, not just not just one group of people, but everybody. Yeah, that is so, so true. So I am going to slide out of the way and I'm going to let you give people words of encouragement. Um, actually, I want you to share like how, well, besides this, um, is this how they can give donations if they want to give yes, donations yes, as well? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, please go to setthexpectation.org. Please share it with your friends. Please donate. We're actually um, working on funding our champions program so that we can launch more cities in the country. We're in Washington, D.C. right now, but we'd like to, you know, be everywhere. There's an NFL team. Um, and then also we're creating our own curriculum for, for high school and college students. So we want to get that going. But as you know, all projects take money. So <laughs> definitely hit the donate button. Um but yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with us and, and reach out and find out what we're doing and how you can get involved. So yes, please do that. Um, and then I guess I just want to end by saying, you know, to any survivor um, on the call watching this discussion, like, please know that you did nothing wrong. Um, this was not your fault. You deserve love and peace and healing. And I hope that you will reach out and find that support. Um, it's, it's out there. And if it's not within your family, maybe it's somewhere online. I know there's a lot of agencies in every city and community. Um, but you don't have to do this alone. And I, and I hope that you, you won't do this alone. So I just, I'm, I'm praying for you, um, for lots of love and peace and healing. And please know that this is not, this is not your fault. You did nothing wrong. So I think that is what I would like to say to, uh, any survivor watching right now. Listen, I don't know if you really paid that song any attention that plays, you know, with with my video on there. Mm -hmm. I, have you ever listened to that whole song? I have not. No, I need you to, to listen okay. to that song. And I promise you, you'll be like, wow, that's it. Because I stopped calling myself a survivor and I started calling myself an overcomer. Mm -hmm. Oh, because yeah. it made such a difference. It, 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 it wasn't just the sound of it, but it's like. I had overcame so many obstacles that had happened in my life over the years. Yeah. And so yeah. that song is um, Overcomer by Mandisa. Okay, and I'm going to check that out because I, I usually call it victim to survivor to thriver. Oh, wow. That's a good pattern. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, that, I I think that's kind of where we all want to go, right? Say, I, 
overcame everything now. Yes. <laughs> oh, and, yes. And I, I, I want that for everybody. I really, I really, really do. I think that, you know, these are things that we didn't ask for. We didn't deserve. And we don't, we, we should not live the rest of our lives with that, sh- that debilitating shame and trauma. Like, and we can't overcome. We can't, we can't heal. Absolutely. It's absolutely possible. And um, one thing that I do want to say before we end this broadcast is never forget the fact that you still have to forgive, you know, no matter what, because forgiveness is crucial and it is for you more so than that person. You know, you have to forgive to keep this clear, all of this clear. And some it, and it does take time. Trust me, it does take time to forgive. Yeah. It definitely takes time. Yeah. I well, and I think it. for each of us, that's a that's a journey that unfortunately a lot of times will weaponize like us. They'll say like, oh, and, but I think that sometimes that's also a personal journey for each person to figure out that moment and that timing and what that means for them and what it doesn't mean for them. Um, and so I, yeah, I, that's something I've had to really dig into myself to figure out because it, it is for you and not that person, but being able to kind of wrap your mind around that, I think is really important too. And so it, it's not going to, it's not necessarily going to happen overnight. And I, I don't ever want anyone to feel like if they can't or they don't want to, that, that doesn't mean that they will always be in that space all the time, if that makes sense. It's a, it's a personal journey, I think, for each person. It really is. Yeah. You know, that's why I said it definitely takes time because yeah. there's so many um, different levels, um, so many different layers that have to be peeled off because yes. of what happened, because all of this stuff and piled on you, now you got to unpeel it. And yeah. when you get to another place, then possibly you can. But when you're not there, you can't say, I can't say I forgive you. You know, I can't say yeah. that right now because I don't feel that. I would be lying if I, you know, that. Well, and I, and I, I think one of the, that. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the biggest steps that I did for me to get to kind of where I am right now is I stopped blaming myself and I stopped letting other people blame me. That was like a really critical part of my journey because you can't, you can't tell me nothing about myself in that night. I didn't do anything to make that happen to myself. Like those men made that decision. It was not me. So I don't blame myself for drinking anymore. I don't blame myself for going there. I don't blame myself for any of it. None of that is mine. That That is their burden to bear. And, you know, they need to deal with that. And so I, I would really encourage people that even before you try to get to that forgiveness step, stop blaming yourself. You know, I, I think for me, that was such a critical moment for me in my life when I stopped doing that. Yeah. So when I got ready to write my, my chapter um, in this book, God had me to literally write down everything that I was pretty much blaming myself for. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go back through that whole list and say, I forgive myself for going over there. I forgive myself for feeling like it was my fault. And I went down this whole list and it was so cleansing. Yeah. It was very cleansing. So the biggest thing is forgiving yourself. Like you said, taking the blame off you because it's not your fault of who these people are. So 
Yeah. So one of the exercises I did is kind of similar to what you did, but an exercise that people watching us right now can do is, um, you know, rewrite down all the things that you you're blaming yourself for. Right. Mm -hmm. And then write down this sentence should rape be a consequence of and take whatever you're blaming yourself for and plug it in to that sentence. Should rape be a consequence of drinking? Should rape be a consequence of going over there? Right. The, the sentence will never make sense. Because sexual violence should never be a consequence of anything. It should never be a punishment for anything. And so anytime I would blame myself or anytime I hear other people blaming victims, I say, but yeah, but should being promiscuous or being flirtatious, should sexual assault be a consequence of that? No, never, never. And that was a, that was an exercise I do um, a lot and teach other people to do as well. So very similar to what you were saying. Yeah, because that's so important. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for saying yes. Um, I, I'm so <laughs> thankful for everything that, that you have given the audience and, and everything. This is on, on YouTube, on my YouTube channel and my um, Facebook. I have two Facebook outlets and they're on both of those. Um, so I thank you so much. And thank you guys for tuning in. Those who thank catch this on me. replay. I just pray that you're able to grasp something out of this whole broadcast, because even if it just touch one, just know yes. that you are not your trauma.